Begin Podfix Network transmission. In three, two, one. You're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet. Or deep in the ocean, casting nets. Fish nerds. Fish nerds. Fish nerds. It's a podcast. Hello and welcome to the Fish Nerds, a show about fish, fishing, and eating fish. It's always interesting, usually funny, and mostly true. I'm Clay Groves, Chief Executive Fish Nerd, a licensed fishing guide, your best friend, and with me once again is the crappie hippie John King. How are you? I'm doing great, Clay. I am doing great. I'm a little frustrated, but you know what? Let's not let things get one down. I like to think we it's my control. fault you're frustrated. Uh, well, <laughs> I've gotten used to you, man, but yeah. I cannot get used to the mother and the mother nature. She's, she's been kicking my butt this month and I guess she kind of kicked yours too. So it, 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 it's been a little frustrating. Yeah. Big storms, big storms today. Lots of rain, but you know what? The good news is rain. It's good. We, we need it. So we won't have a drought this year, at least. Well, see, I'm on the opposite end of that. We've, we've had a spring drought, which is really a pain, but, uh, we got a special show for everybody tonight on one of my favorite fishing in all the world. You like bass fishing. I love bass fishing. But we're talking about that green thing, that brown thing, that spotted thing, that ditch pickle, that bronzy, that uh, Kentucky bass. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the bass of truth, brother. The well, bass of truth. Well, it's funny. One of my favorite things to do on a fishing forum on Facebook or something, when someone puts a picture of a largemouth bass up, I always say, hey, nice sunfish. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Because it's not a bass. Let's talk about your true bass, John, because I'm excited about this. We've got a great show about true bass coming up for you all tonight. Hope you learned some stuff. We're going to be talking about one of my favorite fish to pursue, the white bass. We've got some stuff on stripers as well and wipers as well. And we're going to talk about all the true bass, including a little bit maybe about white perch and maybe a little bit about yellow bass. You know, not a whole lot, but the big three, we are all over it tonight. Okay, so I got some true bass talk for you tonight, Clay, and for all our wonderful listeners out there. We're going to start off with two old farts talking fishing, me and the professor talking about some white bass adventures, and then guess what? I got Todd Correa in the house. This Back is again, Correa. huh? Back again, our great new correspondent. He's already sent in two dynamite pieces, and we got together and did a back and forth on springtime striper fishing in the salt pond area of New England, excuse me, where he does most of his striped bass fishing, and that's going to be a lot of fun. And then let's just have for dessert there, let's finish it up with a report from the one and only Jeff Donaldson on how to fly fish. Oh, that's our effing librarian. Yeah, effing librarian, but he's coming on. He's a fly fishing nut. And he loves to fish for those white bass and especially wipers oh, with too. his fly rod. He is he is inseparable from that stick. It is uh, pretty impressive uh, how dedicated he is to that pursuit. So that's what we got coming up. It's a real earful, John. <laughs> it, well, it's going to be. If you don't like uh, the true bass, then you might as well move on because that's what we're doing. That's what we're after. It. All right. So what's first? Let's go. Uh, two old farts talk fishing. Now it's time for two old farts talking about fishing. Hello, everybody, and welcome to two old farts talking fishing. I got the professor here in the Glasswater Studios this morning, and what are we getting ready to go do this morning, my man? Going to go chase some early spring white bass. We're just hoping. We heard a rumor. We heard a rumor, and that's all it takes to get us going a little early. But uh, 
Like I say, that's all it takes to get us going. So we're going to tell you a little bit about our white bass adventures, hopefully get back and tell you how well we did. But let's talk about some white bass and, and how you go fishing for these springtime whites. Uh, we're just going to take the basic when, where, why, how, that sort of thing. So um, let's talk about when. When we're sitting here in April, the violets are starting to bloom, which is a vital, vital sign. Even if the temperature range gets where you want it, you want to see those violets blooming. Uh, also, we got some good bud swell going on with the red bud trees. We're seeing some Bradford pears pop out. Uh, what else are we seeing that's a good sign, Les? Well, it seems like a lot of birds and other animals are just being a lot more active during the daytime. Uh, when you're outside hanging out, you know when it's uh, starting to feel like spring, you can tell it's in the air. Absolutely, absolutely right. You can tell whether it's a 60 degrees coming down from something because the wind's in the north and you, you can just feel it's going to get colder or boy you can be 60 degrees you're already taking your jacket off because you can just tell from that south wind it's it's going to get nice and warm so we're in that good time so right now what we're looking for water temperature water water way water temperature water temperature now water temperature wise this is what you want you want it between 55 and 65 degrees now, at 55, just a, the little males will kind of start piping into the stream just a few at a time. It really starts rocking hard at 58 through 62. That is your peak temperature. And then when you get up around 65, uh, parties parties winding down, and they, they get scattered and harder to catch, and pretty soon they've all gone back to the lake. So, And I'm going to talk in another piece uh, about Potomotomus fish. And we will talk about what kind of a migratory fish a white bass is. Um, when I got the professor here, we're mainly going to talk about fishing stuff. So where are we going to go this morning? I think we're going to try and find a little creek arm. Boop! <laughs> <laughs> we're going to try to find a local little uh, small river arm that we can go up connected to some bigger area waters. Uh, so... This time of year, those fish are pushing up into those smaller areas looking for places to spawn. That's where we're going to go look for them. All right, so white bass in, uh, is what's known as an indifferent spawner, and they like to lay their spawn where it's going to get some current on it. Now, the current can either be from in river or creek, or it can be on rocky shores in the actual reservoir. We got reservoirs around here. So we got these creeks, we got these rivers that feed the feed the reservoir. And when they get to that magic temperature, we start having whites move in. And they're either going to congregate around sandbars, the drift piles, log piles, log jams, things like that. Log jams will kind of hold them up, even though others will squeeze on through and keep going up the river. That'll tend to concentrate your fish. And and big rivers. You can go down and catch whites on the call. You can catch them on the mo. You can catch them on the Blue River going into Tuttle Creek. You can catch them in a lot of places. They'll go up some bigger rivers. And then they'll, like on a big river like the Kaw, they'll go up side creeks, especially if we're having a lot of rain and the big river's really getting blown out a lot. Then they won't mess around with spawning on the sand in that river. They're going to want to head and head up a side creek where the current's a little more agreeable because they certainly don't want to just lay their eggs and have them just get blasted down the river and you had a couple other good ones professor what are you two of your favorites well this time of year a lot of your outflow areas on the back ends of reservoirs uh, tail waters power dams places like that there's spring water release on a lot of these river or a lot of these lakes a lot uh, this time of year and anything that's dragging that current putting more water in the river is going to pull those fish up like say from a larger body of water like a river or a lake on up into that tailwater area where they're going to start to pile up in that nice current 
from that outflow. And of course, the power dams, one swimming upstream, like in the call, they get up there to Bowersock and it's really hard for them to go much further. That's another, uh, what we call choke points. We talked about in the pre-spawn bass. This is another species can have choke points. And certainly you come running up the call and then you turn and go up a river and toward a reservoir and all of a sudden there's a big old dam in your way. And they ain't got no staircase, they ain't got nothing. They're, they're going to have to stop in there and They'll try to spawn. They'll try to do this or that, but they'll at least be, they, they feel like moving and they will congregate where they do get stopped. So that's another place you can go and look for them and, and be a lot more accessible to folks that uh, maybe don't have the mobility to get up and down creeks. They don't have the wherewithal or just plain don't have a good creek coming out of a reservoir near them. It surprises you. They, they've, they'll, they'll migrate up to 10 miles as far as marked fish. I think that's the longest distance I've heard. They're kind of like a bird. They're in that three-dimensional environment. They just keep going, going, going because they really like to find those riffles. Even though they'll do the drift piles, they'll do the sandbars, uh, the smaller bodies of water, you look for those riffles, and that is their favorite place to spawn and lay their eggs. And it is the most wonderful place to fish. So it's absolutely too fun. Get out there in the riffle and uh, throw your bug around and catch you some white bass. And one more good sign is when your mushroom hunting friends are like, hey, I'm going mushroom hunting. You want to go? You say, uh-uh, I don't want to go. I want to go up the creek and find the white bass because when it's time for the mushroom hunters to be wandering around, at least here in Kansas, here in this part of the Midwest, then you know those whites are going to be in there strong. So if you pull in the parking area, you pull in the parking spot, don't get too shook up because you see two or three other cars there because chances are, especially if they're, you know, you can kind of tell they've got fishermen stickers and stuff on the window. Well, they're probably in there going to compete with you a little bit for white bass space. But if they don't have fishing stickers... Then they're mushroom hunters and should be avoided at all costs. <laughs> oh, yeah. You never know. Those mushroom hunters, they're, they're, hard, they're more secretive about their spots. And they look over their shoulder way more than we do when we're fishing. That's for sure. It's finding a good mushroom spot is, is, is a thing that's passed down through generations and kept, kept holy and secret. All right. So we covered the when and where. Let's go on to how. How are we going to do this? You got a few questions for me there, Professor? I sure do, John. I grew up fishing for white bass below the Fort Gibson Dam in Fort Gibson, Oklahoma. And down there, we used a lot of spinning gear, a lot of corks and jigs, and caught a lot of white bass down there in that current going going uh, through the Neosho River, coming through, which comes through our, makes a lot of our Kansas lakes as well. I'm real new to this skinny water creek type fishing for white bass when they're really going pushing it up as far as they can so i've had a couple questions first off uh what kind of gear should i bring with me if i'm going to be traipsing through the woods and avoiding mushroom hunters as we go okay so yeah if you're gonna go up a small river or creek or something like that and you're going to be spending some time in the woods so you know big river stuff like that i like to have i have a five foot mitchell something 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 graphite something i got at a auction sorry to not to be more helpful but i just don't remember all these model numbers and all this stuff all i know it's green it's a mitchell it's about five foot long it's it's a nice light action rod medium light action but it's got some real guts to it got some real backbone because even in a small creek you're sometimes you're gonna have to horse on that fish sometimes you're gonna have to convince it not to run into that brush, not to run around that log. I mean, there's hazards aplenty. Uh, I made the mistake of going with a whippy little trout style, crappie style, soft tip, soft uh, back rod. And, and while it's fun as heck to fight them, you just can't get the control. And then my other big river rod is a six-foot black rod. I think it's made by Berkeley. I think it's called a hot rod, but it's black. 
All right, it's black. It's a black rod. I'm sorry, I don't know. But anyway, I like to do that with uh, about an eight-pound test on it. Or on either one, my ultralight or my light action, I like to put an eight-pound Berkeley XL, uh, extra limp, which is just something I don't want to say being 61 years old. But there, I went ahead and said it in spite of the pain. And, uh, of course, you can use braid in any of these situations, and it's probably a good idea. So I use just, you know, a good reel that'll fit that. Like on my bigger rod, I use a Mitchell 300 Anniversary Series. Once again, same old story. Got it at a sale or an auction or some darn thing. That kind of thing. So, but I like to keep them around for in these creeks and in this brushy stuff. I like to keep the rod somewhere in the five-foot range. And I'm even bring, bringing like a four-foot, ten-inch today. Just a little bitty rod, because this creek is really small, and it's amazing how many fish go up it, but uh, it's it's woods all the way, brother. So, all right, bigger water, you can use bigger poles. I wouldn't go much above a 10-pound test line. Uh, real fan of braid these days, because you get so much strength out of such a small diameter. It's always a good bet. Smaller waters, you're going to want smaller poles, just so you're not having snagging in the trees and the brush and then this and then that. As you're going down this trail, it's only a foot foot wide or, or what have you. Or following a deer trail, for goodness sake. It can be just like that. So, once again, then, no lighter than four-pound test. I like to go six or eight. Or, or of course, let's quit talking about test and, and talk about diameter when we're when we're talking about braid, because you're just going to be real happy with any kind of braid. I like that uh, Berkeley Spider Wire Easy Braid. Why is it called Easy Braid, Professor? Because it's um, so easy. <laughs> That's right. It's made for dum-dums like me, I guess. Maybe it doesn't tangle as much. I don't know what it is. But, yeah, I, I got the beginner's braid, and I'm real happy with it. So there you go. Short rods for the woolly, woolly, woolly walks. Uh, longer rods for when you're in the bigger water. Makes a lot of sense to me, John. I'll leave my seven foot six inch rods at home, which are really more suited for the more open areas of the tailwaters and outflows and power dam kind of situations like that. Okay, so you give me some good tips on uh, the size of line I need, length of the rod that would be good. What uh, do I tie on the end of it? Jigs. I'm telling you, right here, right now, you go to the store, you can get yourself a dozen chartreuse eighth ounce crappie jigs and a dozen white eighth ounce crappie jigs and 90 some percent of the time that's going to be all you need to take you right on up to white bass success but i'm an old-time fisherman that's run into some conditions and some situations where i can kind of get bear down and maybe increase my yield get a few more strikes by having a few different lures for that 10 percent of the time that uh, just a straight up chartreuse or a straight up white jig isn't quite the ticket so one way you can look at your patterns you can either, you know you got your plain jig and then you can fancy it up tell me tell me some flashy stuff we can tie in there man man you can dress that jig out if you're tying your own with a little crystal flash or flash of boo that kind of thing give them a little bit of that extra glimmer power when uh, especially when the water's muddy like it often is when it's flowing through creeks and things anything that's going to give you a little more flash is going to help you out a lot another thing that adds some flashes too are some spinners uh uh, either by themselves or in combination with a jig. Do you ever use those, John? Oh, yeah. Any kind of jig, you know, that's been, uh, has a spinner attached, whether it's a crappie doodler or a road runner, you know, your underspins are great. Your beetle spin type spinners are great. Tail spins, 
are great to use. They're real fun for trout, but boy, you can sure take them up and use them in streams for white bass too. Spinners based on jigs. Uh, one more thing about jig patterns, if it's the opposite and you're in a creek that's really clear, it always pays to have some gray jigs, maybe some p- dusty rose pink, something like that, something in the more natural zone. So you want to be prepared for water turbidity or the lack thereof. So have some natural stuff, have some flashy stuff, and but if you can only get a few lures, then stay right there in that zone with just a straight-up chartreuse, straight-up white. Now, what if I don't like to fish jigs? I'm not you, crappie hippie. I don't want to fish no jig. Tell me some lures. I bet the professor knows. Here, you quit talking and let the professor tell me. Basically, any kind of small crankbait, small jerkbait will also work as a non-jig alternative. Uh, just great. Um Many times you can find them with running different depths, different sizes. Of course, they give you a little flexibility for color choices, and they're a great alternative to a jig as well. Rapalas are a very common type of crankbait, jerkbait. They make a wide variety of great, what I like to just kind of call a wiggle bait in sizes that both crappie and especially white bass like. We catch a lot of white bass on rapalas rapalas however you want to call it <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm, he's laughing because i i found one here on my bench it's a gray one that he found below uh, one of the reservoirs we were fishing down the tail race down there and it'd been in that stream bed so long the hooks had rotted off but the body was still good that's one reason everybody likes rapalas because but this thing's about what's that lasts about two and a half inches yeah about a two and a half inch probably with silver but it, it's gray now but that's a real popular size that's a real popular bait uh for fishing for white bass it just and you can use the countdown too but you get into a lot of these places we're going to go and and the regular one is best because you don't need it to dive you know more than eight ten inches top so yeah so great so inline spinners plugs those kind of things are just fabulous for white bass fishing okay now tell me who gets to go white bass fishing? Why is this such a great thing for everybody to give a try if they're so inclined? One really great aspect of white bass fishing, and particularly when you're getting up in the small creeks and things, it's such an accessible type of fishing you can do. Typically, you do a lot of it from shore. Don't need a lot of fancy gear. Don't need a fancy boat. Don't need electronics. Don't have to spend a whole lot of money or have a bunch of complex equipment to be able to do it and have a great time. It's also real accessible for young kids. You can get them a simple little spin cast setup little spinning rod and reel get up and you can just go out have a blast and you can fill a gunny sack full of them if you really get on them that's absolutely right all right so it's an every man's fish you know normally i'm always upset because white bass aren't considered such a big game fish but once they're done spawning oh they'll come up to the shore every now and then but you've got to have the timing whereas now you just know they're going to either be on the rocks and the windswept rocks on the lake or they're going to try to get up one of these creeks and you're going to have to research which ones carry enough water and have the right conditions but once you get them dialed in you've got that information and it's yours and you can go up there every time so they really are this is an every man's fish time of fishing and please get out there and do it any last words professor you ain't in the water you're wasting your time you're listening to a couple old farts when you should be fishing this has been two old farts talking about fishing with less than professor klein and crappie hippie your tree hugging redneck from eastern kansas saying timelines and valentines catch some black bass already now he said
All right. Now, next we have Todd Carrere. And this, like we said, he's turned in a couple of really good pieces. He's our new correspondent. He is the Fish Rap Writer. You can find him at fishrapwriter.com for some good reading. He is an amazing guy. And this time we got together and did a back and forth about striper fishing versus white bass fishing during the spring. So let's listen in and hear how Todd Correa fishes those salt pond areas of New England, which are his passion, and how he chases stripers in the spring. Hey, Todd, welcome to Glasswater Headquarters Podcast Studios. This is great. I got you, talked you in, cajoled you, coerced you, whatever you want to say, into <laughs> becoming a correspondent, and you've sent in two fantastic pieces. But this time, we get to talk about stuff. How you doing tonight, Todd? I feel very honored to be in the hallowed halls of uh, Glasswater. I'm very happy to be here, of course. This is, a, this is a big honor for me. Thank you. Well, I am glad to have you. It's great to see you and always great to talk to you. And what we're going to do tonight, um, I've got white bass fever, brother. And right on. I uh, wanted to do some stuff for this show on the true bass. There's nothing wrong with the ditch pickle. There's nothing wrong with the bronzy. <laughs> nothing wrong with spots. Nothing wrong with any of those fish, but they're sunfish, darn it. And we're after the bass of truth, the true bass. I love that expression, man. The bath, the bass of truth. I love that. <laughs> and the bass of truth that, that gets your water boiling is the striper. And out here in Kansas, we have a little bit of striper fishing in a couple of reservoirs, and there's a few in the call, but mostly we're all about white bass and wipers, buddy. So let's uh let's just go back and forth about white bass striped bass things like that where they're the same where they're they're different because uh, i really am just so taken with this everybody from the atlantic coast especially the folks up in the northeast well everywhere all through the carolinas i have a couple of buddies in the carolinas and i mean you know it's just all up and down they're going for the rockfish they call them rockfish or rocks sure. and stripers this that uh fascinating and and the complete fishing culture is legit as largemouth bass fishing or trout fishing or any of that so absolutely so let's get let's just get down since i we're hoping to get better weather we better weather uh we would take better weather actually we'd take any weather other than what we're having <laughs> because last year it was cold and rainy and it only got warm enough for him to run for a couple of weeks now this year it's been so dry and bony in the creeks and too hot uh it's it's been really weird but we're all turned on to get after our white bass they're running in the creeks they're running in the rivers and uh, you said something to me uh, last time we shot messages back and forth about uh, the stripers going up to Maine. So I'm going to let you start. You tell me all of all the cool things about striper spawning. I guess, honestly, I guess the, 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 the best the best image I can give you is that up here, striped bass are kind of like the perfect game fish. They're beautiful to look at with their seven stripes. They are aggressive. Uh, Feeders, they're aggressive on the line. You know, they put a big fight. They got to give in sometimes once they're close to the boat, but they're really aggressive fighters. And they're all over the shoreline for most of the warm water months. So, you know, like we have bluefish kind of come and go, the false albacore and the bonita kind of come and go, but the stripers are here pretty much, you know, the whole warm water season. So they're a, they're a primary target for us. For those people who choose to keep them, they are pretty good eating as well. So they're kind of like the, you know, from an angler standpoint, they're kind of like the perfect fish. Well, so, you are, right. I hate, sorry to interrupt you, buddy, but you're a little spoiled. Every rockfish, every striper I've ever <laughs> eaten, I thought it was outstanding, man. Outstanding. 
they are good. I mean, they're, they're a tasty fish and, you know, they hold up for a couple of days. You know, the old expression up here is fish and family both get old after three days. So, you know, <laughs> stripers are in They're They're just now making their way up from the mid Atlantic. Most of the fish have been in the Hudson or the, or the Chesapeake for the winter. Um, and now they're coming back up North as the water. Um, I, I fished, Two Saturdays ago, the water was about 46 in one of the ponds, which is a which is a salt pond fed by the ocean. I fished last Saturday and it was 61. So the water's coming up with the tides. The water's warming. The bass are following the fish, following the bait. Um, river herring are here, which I know you want to chat about. Um, the river herring, the alewives and the bluebacks are here. It's a primary forage fish, so the stripers are very happy to greet them at the river mouse and. They're, they're working their way north and east as the river herring are. At this point, river herring are from where I am in Rhode Island. Um, they're through Connecticut, Rhode Island, and onto the Cape. And the bass are just starting to show up in you know the last maybe two weeks or so. They're really starting to show up. Not great sizes, not huge fish, not huge numbers, but that's normal. We just had two days of rain here, so that will chill the waters and that will probably slow their migration down four or five days or something. But we're right on the cusp of seeing a whole wave of bass from the mid-Atlantic come all over our beaches. And are they in there to spawn or are they mainly chasing these bait fish or what's the story there? Both. This is this is a natural migration. You know, this is a millennial old migration. They will spawn. Some, you know, I... I I've been fishing a long time, but I don't have any answers like that. I don't know why some fish stay near me. I don't know why some fish go up into the estuaries in Cape Cod. Some go around the Horn through the canal and they go up to Maine and New Hampshire. Um, uh, I have some good friends who, uh, my buddy John Fishbein runs a um, he runs a charter boat up in southern Maine. And the last couple of years, you now I went to college in Maine. I spent many years on the coast of Maine. That was not a, a striper spot. You know, you may be in the warmest months, you would see some bass, but that, you know, you didn't go to Maine to catch stripers. You didn't do, you catch pollock or mackerel. But John Fishbine, he's been seeing bass in the rivers in southern Maine in the summer and big bass, you know, little slot size fish, 25, 26, 28 inch, 30 inch fish. So they're following that warm water, they're following the bait. And if the herring are on the move, People can say whatever they want about global warming, wherever they fall in that conversation. The waters are getting warmer, especially in the Gulf of Maine, which by my recollection is either the first or the second fastest warming body of water in the world, salt water. Um, those fish are following that warm water. Well, it sounds logical. I mean, there is climate change going on and there's no denying it. So what you're basically saying is that, of course, we're seeing a lot of things shift toward the north the lobsters the loons you know all kinds of things but what you're telling me is that we have some transitional fish we have some resident fish am i am i getting that kind of correct you are you're absolutely correct so in the fall you know if you reverse the last year most fish should have headed back to the chesapeake and the hudson that kind of area some fish do stay it's totally natural um there are some lazy fish out there that think they can just hang out in our salt ponds for the winter and we catch them through the winter and that's totally normal. Uh, a group of us were down in Washington, D.C. about a month and a half ago lobbying for the Magnuson-Stevenson's Act reauthorization. And part of my discussion was the fish that I'm seeing in January and February or December should be, you know, 18 inches, 20 inches. They're just little guys that stayed for the winter and I'm catching 20 pound bass. I'm catching 30 inch fish, big fish that have stayed 
So there is a population that, that has stayed, and then they will also migrate out of the ponds and the rivers pretty much right about now. You know, as the as the seawater gets warmer than the river temperature, they'll they'll move out and they'll start chasing those herring, and the sea herring will move in, and then they'll be on their way over to the Cape and through the canal. Okay, so very cool, very cool, very interesting. But let me get down to brass tacks here. I'm going to tell you all about white bass. What we right look on. for is 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 water 55 degrees. The little males start hanging out at the mouths of the creeks and rivers that flow into our big reservoirs. Clay always gives me a hard time about our fake lakes. Uh, we have these big impoundments, uh, actually not big in Kansas compared to our surrounding states that have, have really big reservoirs, but they're big enough. 55 degrees, males start to come into the creeks and rivers right around 58 degrees. There's a magic range about from 58, 59 to 61, 62 right in there. And that's when the females come in. Uh, they're looking for rocky spots. They're looking for riffles. They're looking for places where they can lay eggs on the sand or the rocks. They actually prefer kind of a gravel if they can get it. Uh, they want that current because that's what gets the eggs to hatch. They hang out and kind of spawn in stages. Uh, white bass eggs hatch remarkably fast. They hatch in th two to three days because Kansas rivers are variable. All the Mississippi drainage rivers are variable. The white bass is a Mississippi drainage fish and they can, we can get a rain and the river will rise six, eight inches in no time. Uh, so these eggs have to hatch fast and these little bass have to get going because where the eggs are laying at a perfect depth, the next day they might be under eight inches of silty brown water. So they, they got to get hatched and get on and out of there as quick as they can. So we're talking 55 to 65 is the optimum range for catching white bass on the spawn. You need to either get up a creek and find some riffles, get up a river and find some riffles or rocky areas. If if you can, I mean, we do have big ref, uh, big rivers like the Neosho that the riffles are way, way, way on up and they mainly use rocky banks or this or that. They don't really have the riffles. It's kind of the kind of a, a wild. And it is one of those fisheries that is world-class, whereas a uh, two-pound white out of a creek in any other reservoir you catch one of the neosho uh three pounder is not going to get you that much uh praise and uh, four and five pound fish are, are 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 known so so there's what we're looking at now if they end up having to stay in the lake or choosing to stay in the lake because they have they're similar to any migrating spawner they do kind of try to get back to where they were born if they can but they're not they're not dead set on it like this year the water's so low that a lot of them can't physically get where they want to go okay so the point i'm trying to make todd is that if they get stuck in the lake or choose to stay in the lake they're going to look for similar types of substrate like they would in a river or a stream they're going to like rocky shores if they can get smaller rocks great if they can get gravel or pea gravel that's a number one but sand will do and even hard clay will do if that's all they can find but my favorite points if i'm fishing for them in a lake is going to be get on the riprap uh, find places where the riprap has degraded also follow the professor's advice find where the riprap is degrading and transitioning into sand or clay that'll be a super prime spot and get yourself on some white bass in the still water because especially in kansas there is enough wind action to create wave current that will provide the necessary circulation to get their eggs to hatch and they're off and running right there in the lake so talk to me about stripers like that what temperature am i looking for what if I want to find some spawning stripers for whatever reason, what am I looking for? What, what's going to draw them in to do their thing? Well, there's kind of two answers to that you're, you're not really 
up here, you're not really looking for bass that are spawning. They're related, but they're not. Um, we're, we're watching that migration for the fish in general, not so much where they're spawning because they do go in the estuaries, you know, the um, shallow water, kind of like that. Uh, they're chasing river herring, which are up here are basically alewives and bluebacks, which like you referenced, alewives and bluebacks have this absolutely phenomenally incredible natural ability to find their natal waters, the, the river they came out of. They can, you know, they may end up in Florida next year in the ocean, but then they're going to come back next year and come back to the river where they were spawned. Bluebacks spawn in the moving water, alewives um, spawn in quiet waters. They go up into the ponds. So we're targeting bass, but not really so much for their spawning. It's just this, this massive mass migration of fish out of the Chesapeake or in the Hudson, that area where typically they spawn. They do definitely spawn up here, I'm sure. I'm sure there's some up in New Hampshire, Maine. I'm sure there's, you know, there's spawning activity there, but we're basically targeting the migration itself, not so much to spawn. All right. So, so do they ever go up rivers? Like I know guys in the Carolina, I have a friend that catches, uh, I think it's in the Pimlico river, go up in these rivers. You mentioned rivers in Southern Maine. So the, the, the runs of these forage fish and the, and the striper spawn kind of coincide. Is that what I'm hearing? They do. And so, so, um, you know, maybe, maybe next year you take a vacation to Florida and you're only going to go for a couple of weeks. And then you get down there and realize that like you had an uncle who passed away and left you a bunch of money and you decide, screw it. I'm going to, I'm going to spend the winter in Florida. It's kind of like these fish should move South and they should go home to the, the estuaries, you know, the, the big grand estuaries of the, of the Hudson, the Chesapeake, et cetera. But some of them stay. I'm not sure how many will stay in the New Hampshire area. There's probably a couple, maybe in the very Southern reaches, but some of those bass will stay. They will decide to spend the winter because, again, you know, wherever you fall in the climate change conversation, our waters are warmer. And we're seeing forage fishes like Menhaden, the pogies or whatever you call them down there, um, the Menhaden and, and some sea herring and mostly river herring that do stay. They're still bait because the waters are warmer. That whole cycle is, you know, so it's kind of keeping them or encouraging them to not go home. So again, we're we're not fishing the spawn itself. It's that bigger overall migration. Once it gets warm, what is this? April, uh, you know, May, June, July, August. Those fish are staying in the sea. They're not generally. They're not going in the in the rivers or the salt ponds because they kind of get too hot. Now we won't <laughs> we won't go down the cinder worm rabbit hole, but there's certain events that may call fish into shallow water into a pond or river. But generally, they're staying on the beach. They're feeding on, and we start getting silver sides and you know, other, other larger bait fish. Okay. So not similar in that respect. They're, they're mainly going after these bait fish, going after the cinder worms. That's around mother's day. I remember that much about it. Amen. And well done. Uh, well done. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm totally down with it. So when you get cranked up, you just told me we, we, we just missed something, a herring run or something. You were all cranked up because you knew that that was what's going to bring them in. But when you go to chasing them, it's not because they're spawning. It's because they're after these forage fish that are gathering or cinder worms that are gathering or what have you. Sure. And, you know, the other thing is, uh, yeah, also have to remember these fish have come a long way. They've, uh, they've, they have swam from the Chesapeake to New England and they're hungry and they need protein. They need, they need calories. They need protein. So they're on those high protein fatty fish like the Manhattan, the sea herring and the river herring. So um, last Saturday, there's a herring run near my house. You know, I've been fishing all my life. I'm, I'm wicked smart. I went, I know there's, 
I know there's river herring in there, and I couldn't find a stripe. The, <laughs> the river herring were in there. I saw them on my machine. I know they're there. But the ospreys were overhead, and the ospreys are feeding on the herring. So the bass, I saw bass. I saw them on my machine, but I also saw them with my eyes, and the bass wanted no part of it. They just kind of sat around and said, I'm not going anywhere near some big old osprey that's going to pick me up and carry me home. So you can follow the you should follow the herring but it doesn't always work well let me ask you a question so sure. when you when you get those white bass in there what are you using for lures what are you what are you fishing with well uh, me and the professor are going to talk about that in another piece but I, i'll okay. clue you right in uh, well, I, I don't want to be I'll a tell spoiler you, nah, it's all right we we can be repetitious it's it's no problem because it's very simple my favorite my favorite lure the simple marabou jig is is your number one yeah. go and if you're into plastics, well, the good old twister tail just cannot right be beat. I see people using the the twister tail on a roadrunner head or a beetle spin or by itself. Uh, but the twister is absolute king. Paddle tails, of course, are good. Shad bodies are good. All kinds of that, things like that. But you want to carry some things with some spinner action. Uh, underspin is preferred because an underspin doesn't lift the bait near as much as an overspin or, or a tailspin. I've, I've been tying up some tailspins in there. They're a, a fun way to go after them when the water's a little murky. So basically just jigs. I mean, your your books are going to say, oh, you can use a, a lipless crankbait, or you can use a small square bill, or you can use, and of course, you can use an inline spinner. But since these environments are rocky and snaggy and full of the river stuff, um, and you're fishing from shore for the most part, I say, why throw away a 4 or $5 lipless crank when you can just get away with a one to two dollar jig and uh, not have to worry about it and of course make your jig lead free because you are going to lose a few and i was just going to say of course since it's lead free it's less of an impact on the environment absolutely but yeah i, I can recommend the crappie dealer and then they're really good for the bigger whites the bigger females and stuff because they run a little lower in the water and they're wonderful in the in the murk and they are my go-to for wipers uh yeah those are my main base now how about you when you're going for the the fishing forum they're up after let's say the the uh, you were going to go the other day for the herring what were you thinking about using this time of year the old expression less is more which is not phil lesh lesh is more this is this is less is more so it's pretty basic uh, basic spoons something shiny like an owl's goldfish saltwater series a little hopkins or a cast master something very basic three two three four inches spoon you're well first of all you're dealing with a whole school of fishermen or are fisher women anglers who are trying to catch fish you're also dealing with a pretty substantial a body of fish so you need to stand out a little bit any of those little spoons like the owl's gold fish will work well you're trying to catch their eye with the reflection if it's a little murky soft plastics three like a doa cow shad a, a small plastic with a paddle tail three inches four inches depending on the wind you're casting into a quarter an ounce or a half an ounce, depending how far you want to go. Uh, I am uh, small, hard plastics, like a basic Rapala. I am all about replacing when it works for the weight of the lure or the plastic. I am all about, I'm a huge advocate for replacing those trebles with singles. You're chasing them because they're chasing. I'm chasing them because they're chasing love. Uh, my white bass are, my wipers are. Let's just, we've got about, all oh, about three, four minutes left here. Talk to me about, you're a small craft guy, and you're uh, uh, also probably have a few words of advice for shore fishers. If I want to get in on this, tell us about your kayak setup real quick, and then tell me if I want to fish from shore, what am I looking for? What should I do? Sure. Uh, the quick lesson on the kayak is um, um, you don't need a super expensive, super heavy, super fancy boat. 
I'm all about safety. You need to have some sort of heat wrap blanket in your pocket, uh, some sort of lighting. You need to wear a PFD, obviously. Um, I keep a bag in my truck with big, heavy sweatpants, sweatshirt, and wool socks. God forbid something goes wrong and I go for a swim. I can run back to my truck, strip down, and put on some dry, warm clothes. Those first few minutes of going sideways are, are pretty critical. Um, I, as I get older, and I've been fishing a kayak for quite a while, as I get older, I, I tend to carry less stuff. I use old first aid kit boxes, which have a little gasket, of, uh, you know, rubber gasket in there. And I have one for plastics and soft plastics and one for hard plastics. I carry three rods. I don't carry a whole lot of stuff because generally, if you pay attention, you should know what the fish are on. So, you know, if they're on the mackerel, you need a couple of mackerel patterns, some bright, some dull, some dark, depending on the, you know, if the water stained or the skies are cloudy. Everything on that kayak should be tethered. I'm a big fan of everything I have is tethered because you don't know. Four or five years ago, I get into an Albi. It turned me around backwards. I damn near broke my neck going backwards, and I almost lost everything I had because it was so strong and came on so fast. God forbid something happens. Every, including the paddle you're holding, should be tethered to your vest. So if something happens, at least you have a paddle. You got something to hang on to. You can wave to a, another boat or something. Oh my goodness. This is so fantastic because yeah, you hear plunk. That's it, man. Those pliers are gone. <laughs> that rod is gone. That your sack full of lures is gone. So yeah, I, I hear that. Yes. And yeah, with I, no disrespect to my lovely wife, I hope she does not listen to this and find out how much stuff I have dropped overboard from iPhones, pliers, <laughs> yes, um, rods, reels. I lost one of my favorite rods at my, one of my favorite rods my whole life. I lost overboard in six feet of water in a salt pond and never found it. So yeah, it does happen that, very quickly. That's yeah, because we're we wade and we can get our waders on and yes. sometimes we have to and we'll wait after these. And yeah, you want stuff tied on. You want it tied on because outside of your rod and reel, it is so easy to mishandle your pliers, to mishandle the lure, to mishandle anything. You develop a new patience and a new sensitivity and kind of a more of an introspective quality. You cannot rush around, you cannot uh, shortcut. Okay, so what no, last you're right. Yeah, Real you cool. honestly, I'm I'm sorry to keep it one more second. It, no, no. You Go develop ahead. a routine where when I want to switch rods because you know all of a sudden the bass are on the top and I need that that splash walk. It's a different rod. I take the minute, I unclip it, I unclip the other rod, I put it back in the rod holder. It takes you know 30 seconds, but you get used to it because when you reach back to get it and you bump it overboard and you drop three, four hundred bucks worth of gear overboard, it'll only take you once to realize you should have put a 50 cent piece of bungee cord on it. <laughs> absolutely hopefully it only takes you once i mean hopefully hopefully we, we've got people out there shaking their heads you know uh-huh. i know my, my motto is i must have done it 20 times but then Amen. i got smart <laughs> all righty todd i'm on shore how do i catch a striped bass is it possible it's a, a little different from the shore but not terribly difficult obviously you need waders you need boots with corkers because we do have a lot of rocks here on the in new england uh 10 foot rod 30, 40 pound monofilament with a 30 or 40 pound fluorocarbon leader. The lures are generally bigger. If you can fish with live eels, if you're that motivated, we um, live eels is almost always the best way to go. But there's half a dozen lures we can get into one day about, you know, some swimmers, some top waters, some deep waters, some dannies. They lures tend to be a little bigger, a little more cumbersome to carry, but you can also go wading with eight lures in your bag and slay the fish. Okay. Fantastic. I love that ethic. I love that idea. But am I looking for jetties? Am I looking for a beach? Am I looking for a sandbar that's off the beach? Am I looking for a river mouth? What am I looking for? If I'm going to pick a spot right. to go shore fishing. 
right now, April, May, early June, when these fish are showing up, yes, you want a rock wall, you want a jetty, you want a rock pile. Not only are they hungry, but they, they're also looking for a place to take a break. And um, striped bass are, are very smart hunters. They're very conservative with their calories. They'll sit behind a boulder and wait for the bait to come to them. You're looking for the backside of rock piles, the backside of a sandbar, anywhere where there's eddy, much like, you know, when you're out there uh, trout fishing, you're looking for those eddies where the water provides a place for the bass to sit almost motionless and wait for food to come to them. It's just, it's just common calorie efficiency. And then a little later on, when the water gets warmer, gets a little more challenging, they go deep to stay away from that 70 degree water. They want to be in that high 60 range, mid 60, high 60s. Then you got to go a little deeper, it gets a little more challenging, but that's when you do the live eels. If you ever want to talk about rigging some live eels, that's a whole nother conversation. Oh, this is crazy. This is crazy. We're going to try to keep these pieces short because um, we do hour-long segments and people forget what we said at the beginning and so forth. We've decided that it's better to do shorter pieces and just revisit the topic over and over and over again because, hey, fishermen don't like to talk. Talking to. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even remember who you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know us fishers, we hate talking and we hate talking about the same thing over and over again. Ha-ha, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. <laughs> so, I, I got a couple of stories for you. I'll tell you three or four times. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you, Todd, for filling me in. It's interesting the way you chase them versus the way we chase over here in Kansas. I have a lot more. I could say you have a lot more you could say, but we're going to wind this up right now. Thank you so much for joining me in Glasswater World Headquarters tonight at the podcast table. And uh, our listeners are going to get some stuff out of this. I just know it, whether you're fishing in that Mississippi drainage for a Nice chunky white that's going to bend your stick really well or looking to get your string stretched by a striped bass. Thank you, Todd Carrera, for coming on tonight. My pleasure. My and pleasure. this has been Crappie Hippie, your tree-hugging redneck from eastern Kansas with Todd Carrera. Check out his <laughs> column at fishwraprider.com. It, right it's on. a great column. Read it when you can. It's a great read each and every time. All right. Tight lines and Valentine, y'all. Peace out. Thank you, sir. Thank you, man. <laughs> and finally, we're going to get Jeff Donaldson in here, the fish nerd librarian, who is also a fly fishing nut, and he's got some really cool things to say about chasing after white bass and wipers with a fly stick in the spring run. So exciting. Hey, it's Jeff Deffen, librarian here. It's late April, early May, and that means around at least parts at least. It is white bass and wiper time. And run's been kind of late this year and the weather's been weird. It hasn't decided whether it wants to be warm or cold and it hasn't rained a lot or maybe it did in one spot but it didn't rain enough in another place. So we're depending on, this is a spawning run of fish. They're coming up out of reservoirs or larger rivers into smaller waters to try to to try to try spawn. And they, they'll spawn in the reservoirs they can and they and I know the summer reservoirs, that's where they almost all the entire spawning comes from. But they like to run up smaller rivers and, and get up into the riffles and the gravel and stuff like that. And that's where they want to spawn. And there can be days of just insane fishing. Just when you get on the white bass and they're really in and they're really hot, you can just catch so many fish you lose track. You know, it's not unusual to have a hundred plus fish day it can happen um well i shouldn't say it's not unusual it's not impossible 
it doesn't happen all the time. But when the stars align, you can't have crazy, insane days of fishing. Um, and I prefer to do this with a fly rod of some sort. And John's out there with his, you know, with his spinning rods. And, you know, he's trying out his various, you know, lead-free systems that he's got. And he's got jigs and he's got little underspins. And, you know, he's got all sorts of stuff that he's working. <clears throat> and I'm going to go out there and I'm just going to fish fly rod. And, you know, there are times when I kick myself, man, I should have brought a spinning rod. I should have brought a bait caster. You know, but I just don't. And by limiting myself, it makes me be better at the fly fishing. I just, I have to, like, learn how to adapt what I've got to the situation at hand. And so I have a couple of different ways I prefer to do this. If I'm in a really small creek, like the one that I can't name, but that is, like, John's secret secret spot, you can... Very easily fish this with a Tenkara rod. There's no wipers in this system. It's all white bass, and it's a small stream. And this is ideal for Tenkara. Tenkara is meant for small streams. It's not really meant for big water. You can use it in big water, but that's not really what it's meant for. And here we're getting really close to, you know, real Tenkara fishing, although they would tell you it's not Tenkara because it's not a, it's not a trout. But we're just drifting a fly. I'm dead drifting a fly in the current. And then waiting to see if it gets hit. And this works really good when the fish are not super aggressive. This is where I really find that system to work the best is, is that I'm trying to see really light bites. And I'm just dead drifting a fly along through, you know, likely lies. And it's lightly weighted. It's not super heavily weighted. It gets down enough, but not dragging on the bottom. And because of the way the Tenkara rod works, the line is really light. You can hold it off the water. There's no slack in the system at all. You can see a very light bite in your line. You know, you don't have an indicator or anything like that on it. You're just looking at your line. And you can see a very light bite. And you can, because there's no slack in the system, you just lift up your rod tip and you immediately set the hook. And so this works really well when they're not particularly bitey. A lot of times when the water's a little too cool or it's just early in the day, sometimes early in the morning, they just aren't active and they'll strike, they'll, they'll hit a fly that's put right in their face, but they're not going to chase one down. And that's where that system works really well. And, you know, you're limited in fish size with a, with the kind of Tinkara rods that I use. Um, they're not big fish rods. They're, you know, they're meant for your average trout and your average situation, you know, and they can, I've caught some fairly good sized trout in them, but with them, but things have to, it has to be the right, has to be the right setting. You can't catch them in big, heavy current or whatever, but you, you, a couple pounds, you'd be all right with a 10 car rod up to that, but you know, with a limit of four X tippet on those things. And I almost always fish five X because I don't want to, I, I want to put a little, little, uh, cushion in there. That's that's kind of the limit. And so small stream, and, you know, when they get going crazy, too, Tenkara rod's fine, and it's fun because of the fight on a Tenkara rod is is, is really where it's at. The, if you've never fought a fish on a fixed-line rod, uh, I have you do it. Go out and find some – go get a go get a Tenkara rod and go catch some bluegills and, let me, and, and report back and tell me, like – you're not sold on this system now, just based on how they fight, how the fight goes with a fixed line rod. But when I'm fishing bigger water, 
and there's bigger potential fish, meaning wipers, a hybrid of a striped bass and a white bass, I'm going to use a regular fly rod. And in particular, I've landed on using a two-handed casting rod, which is called a spay rod or a switch rod. And the way these things work is, is that you're doing a basically some glorified roll casting. It's really all that spay casting is. You'll hear about this, but it's all about making a roll cast. And then you do some other stuff that sets up your roll cast, how you reposition your line from, you know, it's it's gone downstream. Now you got to reposition so you can quick cast it back out. But it's all just roll casting. This is also really good because a lot of the places where John and I are fishing, there's not a lot of, there's trees. <laughs> and it's hard to do some overhead casting. And even when a river's not, or or a creek is not particularly that big, I still have a problem of I can't overhead cast a whole lot. And so using a, a two-hander means that I can do this roll casting and not have to worry about getting hung up in the trees. The other great thing about this two-handed casting is it's so much easier on my joints. My right shoulder is, is aging and it's starting to give me some problems. And so a lot of overhead casting, especially with heavier fly lines and heavier flies, really starts to like hurt my shoulder. And the two-handed casting allows me to the, just much less motion that you have to do to do this. And so it's much, much better for me in that case. But here's the real great thing about it is, is these things were designed to fish for an anadromous fish on a spawning run. So they were designed to fish for originally the original spay comes from Scotland, the river spay, and they're fishing for Atlantic salmon. And then that fishing technology kind of got picked up by people in the Pacific Northwest to fish for salmon, Pacific salmon and steelhead. And then some people started to downsize the whole system a little bit for to fish for trout. And then other people went, huh, these I bet these will work really good for bass. And specifically, some guys down in Arkansas started using them to fish in the White River system for white bass, wipers. And there's some full-on stripers in some of the systems down there. And that's where I heard about it from, was I heard it on a podcast. And I said, huh, that makes sense. And so I bought one. And then I bought two. And then I bought three. But the one that I use the most is what's called a switch rod, which means that it can overhead cast. Uh, it's not particularly great at it, but it will. Whereas a true spay rod, almost you almost can't, you can't single hand cast at all. And I use what's called a skagit head system on it. So the way this works is I've got a, a very short, compact and heavy floating fly line. That's called your skagit head. And it's only... I think it's mine's on maybe 12, 13 feet long on my switch rod. So it's a six weight switch and the weight system in these two handed rods is a little different. Basically add two to that to get the single hang equivalent. So a six weight switch is equivalent to an eight weight ish more or less. And so I'm casting that and I've got a, I've got just a shooting line, which is just monofilament. Then I've got this short, heavy head. 
And then attached to the head is a sink tip. And those sink tips come in different densities. And that controls how fast they sink and how deep they sink. And you can switch those out. And that really is the key to the whole system right there is, is that, you know, I can use, I mean, there's even a, a floating tip that I can use. I don't use it very much, but, you know, I can use an intermediate or, and it goes through a series of sync rates and they come in various lengths and whatever. But this allows you to get the fly at just the right depth because you don't want it to be too high in the water column. Most of these fish are down close to the bottom. And so we want to get the fly right in their face, but I don't want it to be hanging up on the bottom all the time. And so I want to find that perfect sink tip. And I've got about, oh, well, I don't know, about 10 different size, 10 different ones of these in various lengths and, and sink rates. And you can kind of dial it in to find that perfect sink rate for where you're fishing at right there, right now. And those vary between five to 12 feet long. And they're just made out of like a fly line material that sinks. Um, it's actually impregnated with tungsten. And you can dial in that sink. And then I've just got a short, maybe three foot, liter of relatively heavy monofilament and then I've got a fly and I use the simplest fly in the world it is just a zonker strip meaning that it is just a little strip of rabbit hide and some chenille and those I just swing across the current and you know as you swing it across the current down by the bottom those especially the wipers hit those flies swinging across the current like a ton of bricks and about rip the rod out of your hand. And that is to me absolutely the funnest thing I think I've had I've found in fishing in a very long time is these, you know, explosive strikes. Big fish when you've got the wipers. And, you know, it's not often around here, aside from maybe a carp, that I see the backing in my fly line. And one of these good sized wipers will do it to you if they if you if you hook them in current. They're off to the races, and you're going to see your you're going to see your backing, and that is not something I see every day around here, and so that is a lot of fun. So if I have my if I have my pick, I would have an ideal day of you know, I would like to go out there and swing flies with that with that two hander. That's my thing. It's my new jam, and in fact, that's like the way I've taken to like doing a lot of my trout fishing now too, is just because it's so much easier. <laughs> does it with the trout? Does it catch me as many fish? No, but is it I have more fun doing it, but yeah, that's my, that's my thing. I've got a fiberglass eight weight that I'm going to break out this year and see how that works. When I can get on the river, like the Delaware, that's more wide open. That's the Delaware in Kansas, not the Delaware over there in, in Clay's part of the country. Um, I've got some fixed line rods that are designed to be carp fishing rods from Japan that are like a tin car rod, except for they're much more robust and I would really like to hook into a wiper with one of those. Uh, but yeah, I just, if, if the day is right and, and all is right with the world, I'm going to have that six weight switch rod and swinging, swinging flies and catching wipers. And hopefully that's what we got in store for us here coming up. It's been a, it's been a little of a disappointment so far this year, weird weather and stuff and have the run just hasn't really materialized in the way I've wanted it to, but Hopefully we've got them coming up here in the next couple, in the next week or so. 
So that's that's my story. It's Jeff the Effin Library, and good to be back here with the Fish Nerds. And uh, I'll hand it back to John. All right, my man, Clay. You've heard it all. You've heard them all. I, yeah. <laughs> you are an expert now. Yes, I did. Yeah, and, and I listened very closely, to, John. <laughs> uh, you know, your ear just pressed right up, you know, those earbuds all the way in like that. You, had, right. to, you had to get some hemostats to get them back out. Um, <laughs> so I got a quiz for you, man. You, you feeling up to it? You feeling ready? Oh, I'm down. I'm down. Let's do this. All right. Because I'm, I'm an expert at True Bass. You are an expert mm-hmm. at True Bass. All right, let's do it. Okay, which of these is not a member of the Marone genus? The Marone genus is what the True Bass belong to. Okay. Which of these does not belong? Is it white bass, yellow bass, wiper bass, peacock bass, or striper bass? I don't know what a yellow bass is, John. I don't think I've ever heard of it. But I'm going to say peacock bass. Peacock bass is correct because they don't look anything like them, and and, exactly. and every time I see anything in the in the in the white perch or or wiper family they, or whatever we call them, true basses, they all have that kind of same body shape. And peacock bass are weird, but I've never seen a yellow bass. Well, let me tell you. First of all, peacock bass, yes, they are just a big old cichlid, and they are an invasive species. But since everyone loves them, they are forgiven, and people angle for them and have a great time pursuing them. Well, in fairness, now, John. A lot of your um, temperate bass are also invasive species, depending on where you're at. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep, yep. Yep. Like I say, they they want to put them in the fountains down on the plaza. That is how, and you know, they get a lot of help with their invasiveness. That's for sure. They sure do. People, people really love them. Okay, so little little trip on yellow bass, the Marone uh, or Marone uh, Mississippi Mississippi somethingness um, <laughs> is very similar to a white bass. They're just smaller. They tend to be more in a river fish, although some lakes do have them. But like the Tennessee River system is just rife with those things. And uh, you catch one about a pound, you're halfway to a world record because the world record is only a couple of pounds. But they're a fun fish. Uh, they're in the family. They're excellent bait for cat, big catfish. And um, they're on my list. I just got to catch one. Yeah, I'll drive all the way to Tennessee just to catch a 10-inch yellow bass. You bet I will. I'm, I'm down. I'm, I'm down. All right. Yeah, but you know me. It. I love a new species. So I, it's, it's, been, it's been a couple of years since I've seen a new species of fish. So I am, I'm itching to go find some new fish. Well, same here, same here. Okay, now let's talk about wiper bass. Mm. Which of these is not a nickname for a white bass striper cross? All right. Cherokee bass, white rock bass, hybrid, wiper bass. Sassy Bassy. Oh, there's more. (laughs) Sunshine Bass, Palmetto Bass, Prairie Steelhead. Which of these is not? Only only one of them is not? (laughs) Uh, Is that, is that, that's, uh, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's a subjective issue, my friend. I can explain. Just just make your picks. I, I think, I think you made up five of them, but Sassy Bass is the one. Sassy Bassy is not a nickname for the white bass striper cross. Right. Now, the Cherokee bass has kind of gone out of vogue because that was the first place they stocked them. So that's how that name came along. White rock is something that they call them on the East Coast. Hybrid is something they call them down south. We have wipers on the East Coast? Uh, Here and there, yeah, because um, I don't know. I just know that that's, you know, we talk about white bass and rock bass, and so they call it a white rock. I mean, it makes sense that we have have white perch and, and striped bass here, right? Right. But I've never heard, even though they live in the same waters here, I've never heard of a hybrid version in New England. 
Well, it doesn't mean they don't about, exist. Well, I'm talking the whole East Coast, my friend. Oh, you know, I am more. egocentric, John. I don't care about. Yeah, the rest. well, you know, everybody loves their home ground. Listen, well, New Hampshire has do. 18 miles of ocean, <laughs> and it's the most important 18 miles on the East Coast. Okay, well, I will not argue that, but I do know <laughs> that if you get down around North, South Carolina, down into Florida, then you can start running into some white rocks. All right, fair enough. All right, and then the um, sunshine bass is a cross that was developed in florida hence the name the palmetto bass is a cross that was developed in south carolina hence the name and prairie steelhead is jeff's name for him but he's out to popularize he's out to popularize that name Mm single-handedly you heard it here first folks jeff danielson new nickname prairie steelhead for what well so here's the trick john go on wikipedia and try to add that name in Okay. I did that with Collins Perch, and I've done it a number of times. It takes almost a minute for the fact checkers to, to get rid of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, keep at it, and you know what? Let's make a blog post about it, and then we have a citation that might stick. Who knows? <laughs> there we go. I, I You know you know uh, uh, what to do there. All right. Well, I know um, it won't work, but it's worth trying. <laughs> <That's all. laughs> I'm not afraid to fail, John. <laughs> that's it you, you if you are then you're not you're not trying all right here we go how many nicknames for striped bass can you think of in 30 seconds go striper rock bass striped bass so, <laughs> that's all i know <laughs> well uh, you're, you're pretty much in with, I, I call with, we call them stripers we call and then right. you go down to down south they call them rock bass if you like buying them at like whole foods down in virginia beach that's all i know well, here's a few that I came up with that are must be fairly localized. Uh, I've heard I've heard a line cider. I don't know where I that. Can, oh, that makes sense to get lines on their side. Why not? And I can I can hear you know up your way people saying a line cider. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But maybe they they don't do that. And no, they, of course, they, they call them stripers. 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 Got some wicked right. stripers up here. Got to go well, to Dunks and get some stripers. <laughs> <laughs> My good buddy Dwayne the Fish Brain from South, I mean North Carolina. He uh he calls them rockfish. Mm-hmm. Um, some people call them squid hounds, and then well, I like squid places, hounds. Yeah, isn't that fun? And certain places along the coast, they're also known as greenheads. So ah. maybe it's a variety of the, what they feed on in that area gives them the uh, greenish tint. Yeah, you said uh, he calls them rockfish. Yeah, that's that's what I heard. Not rock bass, rockfish. Well, I was going to take exception to that because what I call a rock bass don't have nothing. With We're back in that sunfish family. That's exactly what I call a rock bass, too. So I'm with you. All right. In 1946, George Sprague Myers, ichthyologist, came up with the term potamodromous. What does that mean? Well, let's see. So anadromous means born in freshwater, lives in the ocean, returns to freshwater. Catadromous means born in the ocean, lives in fresh, goes back again. The other one must... I, what else is there? I mean, you must you must live be available anywhere. All things are possible with potamodromous. Uh, potamodromous comes <laughs> from the word potable, like potable water. Yep. Yeah. So I ain't drinking no brackish water, boy. I ain't drinking no seawater neither. This is a fish that does its entire migratory cycle within a freshwater body. Oh, big so, river or a big lake, big so reservoir. When we landlock a fish, like a striped bass or a white bird, and they're able to live their whole life cycle, run the river, spawn, come back again to their freshwater habitat. That's what we're talking about. That's exactly So we why. see the same thing with, with landlocked salmon, with steelheads. 
Okay. I mean, yeah, the ones from the Great Lakes, the steelhead from the Great mm-hmm. Lakes are Potomotomus. But of course, my favorite is I just said you're you're white because I'm saying you're right because my favorite one is the white is the white bass. That's our mm-hmm. Kansas Potomotomus fish that I love so much. Now, for bonus points, what about if their entire migratory cycle takes place in the ocean? Well, I don't know. Oceanoidotomus. Pretty close, Oceanodromus. Oceanodromus. Okay. Say that fifty times. Fast. No one ever says it. We, we, <laughs> no one ever says it. We, we always and say we say anadromous all the time, and then when, yes. we, when we show off, we say catadromous. But that's as far <laughs> as we go. We don't. Right. We don't go. Poda, now I have to learn these and show off one more step. There you go. Well, yeah. I'll send you the link to the uh, show notes, and you can. Appear to be smart all you want. I can fake it till I make it, John. <laughs> That's right. Okay, here we go. Somebody cue the music, the music or the music, because part two of this quiz is about sex. Sex. <laughs> Big thanks to the mysterious baitcaster cylinder for that music. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Okay. Which of these true bass must lay its eggs in continuous current? Is it white bass, striped bass, white perch, yellow bass, or wipers who, yes, occasionally can manage to spawn even though they're hybrid? Is there more than one answer? Uh, okay, I'll give you a clue. No, there's not more than one Striped answer. Striped bass. Striped bass is correct yeah. because... Yeah, they got to have eggs. They stay suspended. They have to stay suspended. They can't settle to the bottom, and then the little fish hatches, and that egg sack, they just kind of float along. I'll tell you right now in New Hampshire, the white perch are spawning, John, and when you find them, there are tens of thousands of them. They're everywhere. They're really shallow water, and the females are so full of eggs, they go belly up, and they're so full of eggs, you can walk in the water and pick them up, and they can't swim away from you. They have no strength. All oh, their my effort goodness. is just being is just staying alive to drop those eggs. It is, it is, and I I've heard of the incredible uh, white perch thing. I've read it on the Fish Nerds Facebook group. Uh, on the list, man, on the list is something I need to experience in person. Um, so, all right, question number two is I'm going to describe some different type of eggs. Oh, that these fish lay, and you're going to match them with the species. Now, your choice is striper. White perch, white or yellow bass. Here we go. Okay. All righty. Sticky egg globs. Sticky. Which of those? (laughs) Which of those three does sticky egg globs? Uh, It must be sticky egg globs. uh, Yellow. yellow? Incorrect. (laughs) That is a white perch. There's some singly, but they tend to cluster into these little globs and and settle to the bottom. Now, which ones? Do single sticky eggs that settle to the bottom and just adhere one to the by them? That has to be stripers. That is incorrect. Wow, that would be white and yellow bass. They they just puke out a whole bunch of eggs and they just fly everywhere and settle into the gravel and then the current or the wind action keeps mm. them keeps the silt off them. And there we go. Now, which of these lays eggs in a bed? Striped bass. 
No, they're all in different spawners. They don't make beds. That'd be them sunfish again, brother. So just, just stay with your guess because which one does free floating eggs that have to stay suspended in current, a continuous current. A straight bass. (laughs) There it is. Ding, 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 ding. Heck yes. Heck yes. All All right. right. All right. This next part is on human enabled fish sex. All right. Because we know. We know that wipers or whatever else you want to call them, white rocks and so forth, are created in the lab. And the palmetto. I did not know that, John. Well, here you go. We're learning all the time. The palmetto was developed in South Carolina first, and that's a female striper to a male white bass. They tend to run bigger. They tend to, because they've got that gene from the big female striper in them. And then the sunshine bass was developed in Florida, and that's a female white bass to a male striped bass but which one came first the south carolina version or the florida version i like to think that florida experiments more so florida bam no the palmetto was first they they thought well we're going to get these big female striped bass and we'll have a lot of eggs and then we'll just put the the white bass in the tank and let them do their thing and we'll come up with this cross but it works both ways Wow. A lot of things in this family can't cross. They lack hybrid vigor, but for some reason, and they say white perch is closer related to the striper, right? but they don't produce a strong hybrid. For some reason, being one step removed and having that white bass gene gives you a very powerful, very wonderful game fish. Well, so. that's amazing. I have to experience that fish, the wiper. I've not ever caught one. so. Well, I love to introduce them to you sometime because it is crazy 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 fun when you can get into them mm-hmm. imagine it's, it's just as fun as any big school of of true bass family because the, the the blitz happens and it's just chaos exactly it is it's just exactly yep. exactly exactly i don't care what species you're talking about they can uh, really give you some thrilling action all right the final question of this wonderful quiz tonight is okay so how many lay how many legs yeah, uh, how many does legs a female, female striped bass have? All legs up to here, John. <laughs> All righty. How many eggs can a female striped bass lay? 50,000 to 150,000. 500,000 to a million. 500,000 to 4 million. I'm going to lean on the higher number. My guess is those other numbers are for other smaller versions of, of uh, true basses. So I think the big number. Taking the number three, and you are correct. Mm-hmm. A four-year-old striper can lay a half million eggs. A 10-year-old big hen striper can lay four million eggs. Right. And those poor little white perch that are all full of eggs and flipping over because they they, they're so full. Yeah, those little perch start out at a three-year-old female with 50,000, and they can live up to like 15 years. So oh, yeah. they get big um, you know, Tim Moore sized uh white perch, then we're talking 150,000 for those nice big one and two pound examples. But the one that blows me away is a two year old white bass female can lay up to 500,000 eggs, and if she gets into that two to three pound range, she can lay up to a million. And we put up a fun picture on the Fish Nerds Facebook group of Jeff holding up a ginormous white that we caught last year in the spring run. And you can tell she is a six figure babe. She is mm. maybe even seven figure. I don't know, but she is, she is loaded. All right. I didn't even keep track of what you got wrong. I won what John. Right. I won. 
I exactly. said you won, so I yeah. owe you a six pack or something when I get up there to see you. <laughs> Sounds good. I got the perfect score, John. <laughs> you did always, always, man. always. <laughs> that was really fun, John. And and I will say I have also eaten striped bass roe, and it's not very good. Oh yeah, striped and but uh, but white perch. The, the the fish themselves all taste really good, but the roe, I, I I can't be sold on it. It's not not my thing. Well, I tried crappie roe once, and I thought it was good in mm-hmm. a kind of a culinary sense. It was really rich, really, and then surprisingly eggy, surprisingly recognizably eggy. Not exactly like a chicken egg or something, but you know how a duck egg or a goose egg, you yeah. know, these things have a different taste. And it was fat, in that, it's that fatness of it. It must be the yeah. okay. See, because it was in that zone. I was Kathy and I were like, "Wow, this is okay." I think I'd want to honor with something rather than just a whole plate of this, though, because it's it's awful rich. Yeah, we do fry up um, a yellow perch roe in the wintertime. and it's delicious. Delicious. Well, <laughs> the texture's not great, but the taste is good. So, yeah, fabulous, fabulous. Yeah. Another thing I gotta do. Another yeah. thing gotta try, man. Yeah, they come out in this nice loop. You just bread them and fry them. Shh, good. Fantastic, fantastic. Good, good, good. Now I want to go catch some white perch. Well, get on it, man, before the run runs out on you. I, know, I quit my job. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes. The universal dream. Yeah. yeah. I need I need quit my job fish nerds money is what I need, John. I know. It's just crazy. Yep. But that's all right. That was great stuff. We learned a lot about temperate bass today. Probably more than we expected to. So that's great. Let's wrap this show on the Bass of Truth. Let's do it, You've Sean. listened to a couple of fish nerds when you should have been fishing. Yeah, big special thanks to all of our guests. John, hit the list for us. Who do we have on the show? Everybody. Well, we got to say thank you to Diana's Bath Salts and right. Molly Pleasant for the music. Not to mention and, uh, not to mention our, our other uh, music there, the Mysterious, mysterious Baitcaster Cylinder. Exactly, Mysterious <laughs> Baitcaster Cylinder. We got to thank. Jeff Donaldson, Les the Professor Klein, and Todd Correa, the fish rap writer, for providing us with such awesome content. We really appreciate that. We got to thank our families for putting up with this nonsense. Here, my wife's waiting dinner on this whole production right now, but oh, yeah. she's a good sport, and oh. she's a fish nerd, too. Drew. All right, let's end this show, John. Until next time, follow the code of the fish nerds. Spawn early and often. Never trust a free lunch with strings attached. And swim against the current every chance you get. You did it, John. You made a podcast. Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets, fish nerds. Fish nerds. Fish nerds. It's a podcast. Just for the hell of it. Fry it in a basket or broiled in a pan. Eat it raw like you're in Siam. Fish nerds. Fish nerds, fish nerds, it's a podcast. Woof. <laughs> yeah, you, we'll win. <laughs>